0: Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 106, Revelation. Come out of her, my people. And in this episode, I would like us to take a look at Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. The heart of which is in verse 4, which is an explicit command to the church to come out of her, my people, referring to Babylon and its imminent fall and destruction. And so on this episode, what I would like to do is to address some of the events that have been happening nationally in our culture. I certainly couldn't continue with this particular podcast without making some reference to that. And since I took the last several weeks off, it's been a bit since I've been able to talk with you about some of our current struggles. But it's very fitting to me how relevant this command in verse 4 of Revelation 18 is to what I believe the church needs to be prepared to position itself to do now directly as it relates with what I guess is best identified as Christian nationalism. And that is we'll talk about on this episode through a great book that I just finished this morning and some thoughts that I have about our political climate right now and the church's relationship to that political climate And we'll make some other observations about why positioned in Revelation 18, this command is actually given to the church. So I'm really glad to be back. I've enjoyed a break, but I'm glad to be back with you. And so let's jump right back in to the book of Revelation. To begin this week's episode, as has been our typical approach, allow me just to read the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 18 so that you can have the context regarding what we are going to talk about today. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She has become a dwelling place for demons! A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, And mourning, I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day: death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God, who has judged her. Now, as I said in the introduction, right at the heart of this passage is an ex um, uh, kind of a command given to the church of "Come out of her, my people." And that's where I have, in fact, taken the title. For this episode, I debated a lot actually about using um, something from verse two, though, uh, for the title, and I chose not to, but it would be fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, because that's in fact what's being described in Revelation 18. As we saw in Revelation 17, this harlot, this prostitute who rides on the back of the beast, she receives judgment in Revelation 17. But in Revelation 18, now Babylon itself, what what Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah prophesied and promised about the actual nation of Babylon at the time during, during the writing of their prophetic books, predicted the fall. This is what Israel had longed for, was that God's enemies embodied in the Babylon idea or the ideal is in fact one day going to be judged. And as much as we have talked about these ideas, I've referenced Revelation 18 a lot. And so in order to keep this from feeling too repetitive throughout the podcast, I always encourage you to go back and listen to previous episodes. Um, the one I, I listed of Where is Babylon um, you know, several months ago, that would be one to listen to as well as some throughout chapter 16 and even 17 where I talk about the self-imploding nature of destruction. And that's really what we see here. But I came across uh, several uh, paragraphs by N.T. Wright that really capture the heart of this passage, and I'd like to start our time just by reading these to you. Um, N.T. Wright is always a great one for words, very clear and very succinct, and so he says this about our passage, the angel who shouts that Babylon has fallen, um, which is echoing Isaiah 21, 9 and Jeremiah 51, verse 8, is bringing the news. That human arrogance and oppression, and the wanton luxury and vice to which they lead, will not have the last word. God Himself will have the last word, and creation itself will hear this word as a word of freedom, a sigh of relief, a flood of glorious light let in upon a darkened dungeon. The judgments articulated in verses six through eight are carefully structured so as to emphasize that what happens to the wicked city is what she has brought upon herself. These are not arbitrary, nor will the vengeance be brought about through the agency of God's people. Vengeance is too dangerous a weapon to be handled by followers of the Lamb. It is God's own work turning wickedness back on itself allowing arrogance to reach a giddy height from which it can only crash helpless to earth. Babylon is to be given the only medicine she knows, the medicine she mixed for others. She has been using her cup to brew a potion for those she wanted to poison, and she will now have to drink it herself. That is beautiful. And I'm glad to just read it to you. And if I didn't have anything else to say, I would just read that quote again and then end the episode because N.T. Wright has nailed it. What happens to the wicked city is what she has brought upon herself. And the way the Lord works is by turning wickedness back on itself. And I could draw your attention to explicitly how John says that. In verse six, he straight up says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And this is why the Lord is always calling his people to be faithful. He's always calling them to true righteousness because he has set the world up in such a way that when you pursue any other end for any other reason, it turns back on your own head destruction and death. Now it's very common for people to believe, as Proverbs repeats all through its own book, that there is a way that leads. You know, um, oh goodness, I'm I'm misquoting my, my own my own verse here. Um, there, there is a course that people think leads to life, but in the end, its ways are death. Something to that effect. I apologize. I can't even remember exactly how to quote that. But people themselves are always making decisions, are always acting based upon the ways they think their own actions or beliefs are going to bring about life and flourishing for them. This is just naturally what happens. And ever since the fall of man, oftentimes what we define as good doesn't in fact lead us to places of life. And so what's really interesting about this, this commandment, and this is the reason why I chose to pull out verse 4 as the title um, for this episode and not verse 2, even though this is describing the fall of Babylon, is because the thrust here isn't just for us as Christians to know that at some point in the future, God is going to judge all of those evil, rotten people who didn't realize that he was in charge or that he was on the throne. I, I, I have, as you know, grown up in the church long enough to know that the vast majority of conversations in the church as it relates to unrighteousness tend to discuss unrighteousness as it relates to people or people groups or communities or nations or political parties outside the church. And it's frustrating to me because this is a way in which Christians have fallen prey to taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems good and right to us to point out the sins and the brokenness and the unrighteousness in our world, but it seems good and right to many Christians to imagine that the really wicked and unrighteous and broken people are those who are not themselves, And so we've strategically positioned a world in which we speak about unrighteousness, but we do so toward people that are not in the church. Well, that's not what Revelation does. Revelation takes what the Bible does as a whole, and that is draws its attention and its concern to Christians. The command, come out of her, my people, is simply given to us as a way of saying, these judgments are coming. There's a particular way of living a particular way of being that will in the end be judged by God as unworthy of his kingdom. And so the book of revelation is one massive call to the church to recognize the temptation, not for the world in general to get sucked into living in these unworthy ways, but the temptation, the church itself faces to get sucked in. Remember the book of revelation was written to Christians The Bible as a whole, when it commands people to live righteously, when it commends righteousness to us, when it calls people to repentance, believe it or not, despite the way sadly that many Christians choose to read the Bible, the Lord himself does not call people to faithful righteousness who have not already entered into covenant relationship with him. So all through the Old Testament, the predominant place where the Lord calls people to faithfulness, to repentance, to live righteously is directed toward the nation of Israel. Those are the people who've chosen to live in covenant with the Lord and therefore are more culpable for their failure to do so than those who've never entered into relationship with the Lord. And why is this important? It's important because you and I cannot live righteously. We cannot live in love unless we have first been loved by God. It's an impossibility, and the New Testament screams this on virtually every page. And so to expect someone who is outside the covenant to believe or to, to live by the commands of love that God requires of those inside the covenant without those outside having first embraced and come to know personally the love that the Creator has for them is a completely unfounded um, way to view them. It, it has no basis in reality. And this is why a a really common passage, but one that I think is sadly overlooked is something like in Matthew seven, when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is one of Jesus's most famous statements. And um, we won't get into all the details about how people have used and abused and misused this particular passage. But one thing I want to draw your attention to is that according to Jesus's analogy here, The fundamental way to prevent unrighteous judgment from being happening um, from one person to another is the fact that the idea is that when you look at your own life in comparison to the standards of God, if you are looking at your own life rightly or righteously, what you ought to see are massive logs in your own eye that need to be removed. And if you are looking rightly or righteously into the sins and the brokenness or sinfulness of other people, what you ought to see their sinfulness as is a speck of dust. I'm afraid that many people in Christian circles do the exact opposite of the things that Jesus is saying here. In fact, we tend to see or imagine, sure, everybody's a sinner. And what we mean sometimes is, well, sure, my sins aren't so bad, but the really bad people are those who vote this way or those who commit this particular act or those who do this or those who do that. And we make ourselves judges of others' standards of righteousness or unrighteousness based on our own definitions of good and evil. And it is good to most of us To see ourselves as righteous. And so we tend to minimize the brokenness and the sinfulness in our own lives to the level of a speck, and we tend to magnify the sins um, of, of somebody else to the level of a log when Jesus exhorts us to do the exact opposite. Now, I don't think Jesus is expecting us to do this. What he's saying is this is the reality. The reality is you've got a log and your brother has a speck and you're making it into something that you'd be able to help him see his error, um, first, you need to remove the log. You need to recognize that the depth of sin in your own heart is most likely greater than the sin in your brother's heart. And if you approach a brother who's caught in some level of sin with that mindset, with that heart attitude, your grace and compassion and kindness and love to that person will be so much greater because you understand the struggle, you understand the tension, But what John is painting for us in Revelation is this idea for the church to recognize that because there are these ways of living, we need to separate ourselves from these things. We need to separate ourselves and our heart loyalties from the kinds of things that in the end will be judged. This human arrogance, as N.T. Wright pointed out, oppression, wanton luxury, and the vice to which they lead will not have the last word. God will have the last word. And when these things implode and when these things fall back in on themselves, the call for the church is to come out of her to recognize the fallenness that is right in front of us, to recognize the brokenness, to recognize the unrighteousness of any system or any structure or any relationship with which we have partnered and to see that that type of structure or that type of relationship or that type of system is doomed by its very nature to destruction and therefore we are to come out of her. Now, I'm gonna assume for a second that the majority of my listeners are adults. Um, And I'm not going to get graphic, but I I do feel the need to point out to you that what is actually being described here is a bit sexually graphic. Um, Come out of her, my people, (laughs) it was actually a reference to pull out. Um, In the middle of a sexual act, of sexual intercourse before actually completing the act and thereby potentially birthing something new, creating some new form of life, unifying to such a one flesh degree that there is no way to come back from that. John is saying, pull out, come out of her, my people. And I know that that's a little bit odd to us, but there, is, there are realities in this world as the Bible makes abundantly clear in speaking about idolatry in spiritual adultery kind of terms. You, you have heard me talk about this before. John is not mincing words when he compares the, the um, relationship to the economic prosperity and the economic oppression that, that the beast creates by referring to the woman involved um, or I'm sorry, referring to the system involved in all of that as a woman, as a, as a prostitute. So he, you know, sexual imagery always comes to mind. Revelation 14 paints the church as a pure virgin bride, um, ready for her savior, ready for her husband. So we've already have images of this, in fact, in Revelation. Um, right here, it says, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. So John's image here is one of you've, you've united, you've joined yourself to some of these systems, some of these structures, some of these ways of thinking, some of these ways of being, beliefs that are deeply ingrained in you. And John is saying, come out. Break that off. Don't let it get any, any worse. Don't go in with this so much that you won't be able to separate yourself from it in the end. Judgment is coming on Babylon. It is here, according to John. And he wants the church to be separate from it. In just a minute, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, I want to address where I think, based upon the events that took place a week ago today, In our nation's capital, I think is a timely word for us to be able to think through practically what something like John's exhortation come out of her, my people might actually need to look like for the church, particularly in America. Now, following... The events that happened a week ago today on January 6th and the big what began as a rally at the nation's capital while Congress was gathering to confirm the electoral votes of President-elect Joe Biden. And many of you no doubt have listened to news reports or watched the news or read articles about the five individuals who were killed during many um, people storming into the Capitol and whether they were allowed in and whether security wasn't as strong as it should have been. And there are lots of conversations going on. If well, these were you know white protesters and had this been a Black Lives Matter movement, it wouldn't have gone down the same way. And I tend to agree with those. That's not really what I intend to talk to you about in its entirety today, although I will be honest, I have a lot of thoughts swirling around in my mind. And I've gone back on several occasions and I've re-listened to episodes that I've presented to you just to remind myself of what I've said and and things like that. And as I continue to get older, I'm trying my best to be more and more clear in what I actually think. And I realize sometimes I speak vaguely Um, in my own mind. I know what I mean, but when I speak, sometimes a person with whom I completely disagree might take in what I'm saying and nod their head and say, sure, I believe that. And yet we're really not on the same page at all. And that's okay for the most part. I don't always stir the pot when I speak with Christians. I'm the pastor of a church and I don't always open my mouth as boldly or with as much confidence or even as much passion as I sometimes do on this podcast. And that's because I'm trying to honor and respect those um, whose opinions I, I maybe disagree with, but also recognizing that In Christ, even those of us who see things diametrically the opposite politically can still find unity, peace, and harmony in Christ. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be a pastor. I'm not sure I would even be a Christian. Um, But because I do believe that, I'm committed to living it out in that way. But for you, as podcast listeners, I really just want to be clear. And I I came across a book several months ago that I just finished this morning, mostly in preparation for this podcast episode, but it's called... Taking America Back for God Christian Nationalism in the United States by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. And this book, for the most part, is a sociological and a statistical look at what they define as Christian nationalism. And in short, they they define it this way Christian nationalism is a cultural framework a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with America, American civic life. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I I like that nice, succinct definition, but Dr. Gorman and I talked about that through his Reading Revelation Responsibly book. Christopher Wright and I have talked about that. Lee Camp and I have talked about that on his book, Scandalous Witness, and I've made references to it in other podcast episodes. But one thing that this book did through its surveys was that they identified four types of people in America. Four types of people and how they respond to the statement, America is a Christian nation. And I found their breakdown really helpful. And they list four categories of people. They list what they call rejectors of that statement, resistors, accommodators and ambassadors. And I'm sure, based on those adjectives, you can mostly figure out who what you believe. Rejectors just don't believe in that. They they oppose declaring the United States a Christian nation. Um, the resistors eh, they resist some things. They're not really sure whether prayer should be put back in schools or that the government you know should ever declare the United States a Christian nation. But they might be a little undecided about whether, you know you should display religious symbols in public places or something like that. So they lean toward opposing Christian nationalism, but they're not completely rejecting it outright. So you've got rejectors who these authors propose about one-third of rejectors affiliate with a Christian religious tradition of some kind. Roughly two-thirds of resistors identify with a Christian religious tradition. You've got accommodators, And they show comparable levels of indecision as resistors, but they lean toward accepting the statement, America is a Christian nation. Um, They're generally comfortable with the idea of America's Christian foundations, but they stop short of fully and completely favoring Christianity alone in the public sphere. Um, A much higher percentage of accommodators espouse a belief in God and have a higher view of the Bible than do resistors or rejectors. And then finally, you have this group called ambassadors. And I'm sure you can imagine, uh, based on that adjective, but they are wholly supportive of Christian nationalism. The authors go on to say, "...in the minds of ambassadors, the Founding Fathers were indeed establishing a Christian nation and merely refrained from choosing a specific denomination. The assumption, however, was always that Americans would be Christian." Ambassadors tie our prosperity as a nation to our heritage of obedience to God's commandments as laid out in the Christian scriptures. Ambassadors believe the United States has a special relationship with God, and thus the federal government should formally declare the United States a Christian nation and advocate for Christian values. Over half of ambassadors identify as evangelical Protestants. Now, I wanted to bring this up to you today because based upon the events that took place on January the 6th, which fascinatingly enough, is the day that the Christian church celebrates Epiphany, the day when the Magi, the wise men, right, from the East traveled far, far across lands and seas in order to bring um, treasures to, to Jesus as a boy. This is the day that we celebrate in the Christian tradition as the day when Jesus was was seen and was appreciated and honored by the nations, right? And so Epiphany is that particular particular day. And yet what's really strange to me and I again I just want to speak clearly if I may, what's very interesting to me is that the the riot Uh, I'm sorry, the rally, which turned into sort of a riot, which turned into some form of terrorist attack and um, storming into the Capitol in terms of doing what? I'm not entirely sure. Disrupting the count, uh, people holding up signs outside that said, Jesus saves people at this um, rally-slash-turned-riot who, who said, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Um, strange symbols, and again, with, with what Christian nationalism here, a cultural framework, a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. That was on display fully and unashamedly on January the 6th at our Capitol. People who say that their Christianity, bringing signs that say Jesus saves or bringing signs that say Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president, have in fact um, advocated for and idealized a fusion of their Christian faith with American civic life. This is just call. Uh, I, I don't have to agree or disagree. My, my point in being clear here is to simply say that is Christian nationalism. So my, my hunch is that many of the people at that rally slash riot were ambassadors of Christian nationalism who believe that because they think America is a Christian nation, they therefore assume that president Trump is a president that God favored to put in that position in order to preserve the heritage of this strong, rich Christian tradition um, that, that is America. And the book goes into tremendous detail with many, many questions across surveys, Um, From um, the spanning decades of asking people their beliefs and where they fall in that line and how best to help explain people's views of um, political structures where they fall politically. What race they happen to be, what demographic they are, what age, where they live, how they respond to immigration, how they respond to to, uh, prayer in schools, what they think of racial brokenness, whether or not they believe police brutality is a real concern or not. And the book for me was extremely illuminating because what it did for me was to show me I'm starting to see where and how I see things so differently from people in my own church, or with whom I am friends, when it scratches, I can't, can't put a finger on it. I can't figure out why it is that things are, are so different. And so in order to be clear, I want to let you know that as a person, both biblically, historically, theologically, and practically, I find myself very comfortably and have for quite some time in the rejecters category. I do not believe, based upon the Treaty of Tripoli, which says in no uncertain terms, the United States was not in any way founded as a Christian nation. I do not believe nations can be Christian. You've heard me talk about this repeatedly. America does not exist to further the advancement of the gospel, which is precisely what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. We aren't little Christs. In fact, people never called themselves Christians in the book of Acts people called other people Christians because those other people noticed in the followers of Jesus that those people looked like Christ. And so they called them Christians. They called them little Christs. This wasn't a noun. This wasn't an adjective that the people following Jesus adopted for themselves. This was originally a derogatory term used to show the rest of the world. Those people are acting just like that Christ guy. Well, what a, what a, commendation, that would be if somebody would have the audacity to call me a Christian because they said, wow, that guy acts a whole lot like Jesus. That would be a tremendous blessing. But I'm starting to realize right now that depending upon how blurred we make American civic life with the Christian faith, where we fall on this spectrum between rejecting it, resisting it, accommodating it, or being an ambassador for it, it is in direct relationship to where you fall on that spectrum that will determine your response to the political events that happened on January 6th. And what I find interesting is that as I said, and I'm losing my place, I'm kind of rambling here, but as I said, January 6th is epiphany. It's the day where Jesus is made known to the nations and the church celebrates that for just that reason. But what's really strange to me and I will go ahead and make this connection because I think it needs to be made. What's interesting to me is that the way Luke tells that narrative for us in the book of Luke is that Herod, who was the quote-unquote king of the Jews, when he found out by the Magi that they were seeking the king of the Jews, the one who has been born, who is the king of the Jews, Herod received that as an imminent threat. And if you remember... Herod explicitly went out to try to follow the magi where they were going so that he could kill Jesus. He was threatened by the incoming of some new government, right? He was threatened by by the, the presence of some new kingdom regime that was going to dethrone him. In fact, anytime you notice fear, fear mongering, or the threat of loss of power causes people to become violent and aggressive in order to maintain their power, you know for an absolute fact, that is not Christian faith. It's not Christian faith. Because the Christian faith comes about through what? Through the Romans and the Jews out of fear and out of preservation of power, putting the Messiah to death. And when Jesus comes back three days later, resurrected from the realm of death, victorious over that, he has gifted the church life that can become new life for them without them ever having to go fear-mongering or power-control routes. And so whenever you see people grasping for control, trying to instill fear and doubt and, and deception into the minds of other people, you know that that is not of Jesus. It is not related to Christian faith. It is not the way God works in the world. It is the way, that Christian nationalism has to work in the world because it has merged itself with something that does not belong with it. It is, in the words of um, Revelation 18, 4, a union that is being attempted to be made where they are attempting to create a one flesh union and birth something new out of it. And John is screaming, come out of her, my people. I fear that the, that the Christian church in America is going to face a tremendous backlash if we have not already done so regarding the four years that we have put time, energy, votes, money, effort, prayers into believing that a Donald Trump presidency is going to somehow and in some way preserve a view that America is a Christian nation. It is becoming clear to me now why I disagree so strongly with so many people's political views, the way they read the Bible, the way they approach their own religious life, what political news stories get them upset, which ones get them excited, where they put all their eggs in what baskets, you know, whether that's Supreme Court justices or or what have you. It is because at root they believe that America is a Christian nation. And therefore people from foreign countries or other religions or people who look at the, the, the family differently than they do or people who think are a threat to the structure and order and, and system that we have perfectly in place, which again, many have defined as Christianity, as God's blessing on this nation – And they have so connected them with political realities and political ideologies that to strip the political ideologies away, make people genuinely believe that the Christian faith is being under attack. This is why it's so important not to fuse the two together. Because what is happening, our political realities being challenged. The Christian faith can never be challenged. It can never be removed. I'm sorry, it can always be challenged. But you can't do anything to a faith that became um, a kingdom reality through death. Like you, you can't rob the Christian faith from 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 being an eternal reality. Because only death itself could take away what you have. And so you attempt by, you know display of force or by taking up arms. You, you seek to defend what it is that you believe is rightfully yours. And yet when you use means that are ungodly to protect something that you perceive is godly, you've already lost. There's emerging. There are two people here having intercourse, attempting to bring about a child, bring about new life. And John is screaming, come out of her, my people. My people, those who are true followers of Jesus, who do not define what it means to be a good Christian as a loyal American or or a follower of Jesus, they define them as followers of Jesus. Christians understand that we have a kingdom from every tribe and language and people and nation. We happen to be Americans, but make America great again or America first, are not Christian slogans. They're American slogans. And when you blend the two so closely together, and then someone detracts from your political view, but you think your political view is your Christian view, then you feel like they are attacking your Christian view, when that's not at all what's going on. I think... The Christian church, by and large, over the past several decades, has, and I mean this quite literally, gotten into bed with this idea, not, not just conservative politics, as this book goes on to show that it's deeper than that. They, they tend to be conservative, but at root, people can believe America is a Christian nation and not even be Christians themselves. So this idea, America is a Christian nation, is, I believe, an idolatrous blend of of ideas that wreak havoc all across the world regarding the way um, Christians in that country choose to live out their faith or believe that their faith is meant to be lived out. And I find it strange to me that on the day that these riots took place at our capital, again, the day we celebrate Epiphany, the day when the standing king, Herod, out of fear and out of um, you know, fear of losing control went violent and tried to kill um, Jesus by having all the baby boys two years old and and under um, murdered. He tried to do that. Like he he spastically wanted Jesus dead. He wanted him killed. And the Lord preserved him in the middle of that. And yet on January 6th, I do think as a result of months and months and months of President Trump's rhetoric, his fear-mongering, his, I think, genuine concern that he was going to lose, which from President Trump's own mouth, he doesn't like losers. He likes winners. And President Trump himself sees himself as a winner and I don't think has the emotional stability to handle defeat. And the best way people like that know how to uh, um, you know, skirt around defeat is to so doubt that that defeat was legitimate. Now President Trump is a victim. and I don't know how many times I have heard Christians, they, they, they act almost as if when, when people speak ill of America or they critique America for not being as whole or as righteous as they believe it, it should be seen as, then, then we all of a sudden are the righteous victim, right? This is classic narcissistic behavior. Um, it can happen in individuals, it can happen in families, it can happen in churches. It can happen in nations. This is classic narcissistic behavior where the narcissist is always right. And every person who opposes him for whatever their reasons, that person is just a mean bully. But President Trump incited all of the same kind of aggression and violence that Herod incited when he was afraid he was going to lose his place of authority. And it happened on January the 6th. And I'm genuinely concerned, not because I think the gates of hell are going to prevail against the church, but I am genuinely concerned for the generations of my age and younger who have watched the Christian church over the last four years support, defend, shove off all of the concerns that real people in the world have regarding President Donald Trump regarding these deep seated beliefs that the way you handle policies or the way you handle life is, is by being a bully. I mean, the guy gets blocked from Twitter, right? Which is sad enough because it was, a, it was just a, a firestorm spewing forth hate and, and destruction. And I wonder if there's not a time right now for the church to step back and reevaluate how far into this are we? It's not too late. It's never too late. But if we think that the enemy, you know, Satan himself is just he he's the one who's sowing all this doubt and division in our country and he's the one who is is um stealing the election from God's chosen one, we've completely misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. When people make statements like that, in the name of God, they are stating Christian nationalism ideals. They are stating ideas of a fusion between American civic life and the Christian faith. Those two cannot be merged. And when they are, John's command and his call is, come out of her, my people. I don't know if you've noticed, but the Republican Party is unraveling right now. Record numbers of people have not only been fired by President Trump, but who now in this 11th hour are flat out resigning from their position in one final attempt to salvage a bit of a political career that for many of them, um, that ship has already sailed. But John's exhortation to come out of her is one final plea for the fact that systems that are built upon fear-mongering, systems that are built upon power and control are doomed to fail, period. Any level of control, oppression, manipulation, fear-mongering, which sadly has been the nature of the conservative um, party for the past several years. Um, (laughs) The Republican National Convention had no platforms on which to stand except to sow fear and doubt that if the Democratic Party elects the, the next president, then everything's going to hell. That's a fundamental misunderstanding regarding who and what American civic life is and who and what the Christian faith is. They need to be distinguished. And yet I'm not here to convince you to become a rejector. There are resistors that I know of. There are accommodators that I know of. And I know of many ambassadors. It's helpful for me though to know this is why we so vehemently disagree about these kinds of issues. And it's freeing for me to just be able to say it out loud to own who and what I am And the reasons for which I believe what I believe, if someone else wants to lay out the reasons they believe what they believe, I'm cool with that. But it's much better for me, for us all to be able to acknowledge, oh, that's why we don't see eye to eye here. Oh, that's why this is a problem. And I want us as a church, me as a Christian, my family, my extended family, my friends, whatever, to be loyal to Jesus and not be unwilling to break away from any system, any structure, any way of gathering people together that I at one time thought was good and right and true, and over time come to see that maybe it's not. And I would like to give an exhortation to the church that that is the time to do that right now. We need honestly to assess Whether or not all of the fear-mongering and the power and the control and the, oh my God, we've got to get a a Republican in office right now because if Hillary gets in in 2016, the whole world's just going to hell. I mean things are going to be terrible. They're going to be worse than they were before, you know, uh, over the next four years. And all I want to ask is just over this four years, has life improved under President Trump four years later? Abortion is still legal. Gay couples are still getting married. There is no border wall. Our allies no longer trust us. Our economy is in tatters. 390,000 Americans are dead of COVID-19. Half of our churches are closed. The other half are half empty. Family members and once close friends will not speak to each other because they have differing views about the person of President Donald Trump. Black people are still being killed in the streets. The GOP leadership is divided. And our capital was stormed last week by homegrown terrorists. And now President Trump is being impeached for a second time for high crimes and misdemeanors. These last several points I pulled from a friend's Facebook post from this morning uh, that I saw him. And he, he, he was asking, how did all of that work out for us? You see, when we're driven to go a certain way because we fear what might come otherwise – Those decisions can be rooted in fear. And therefore, what we feared would happen actually does happen. You you can't reverse fear with more fear. And yet, that's a lot of what's going on right now. Um, It goes on on both sides of the political spectrum, for sure. But in the circles in which I live, those Christians that I know and care for and shepherd and am friends with um, are largely conservative by political leaning. And I have been trying for years to figure out the roots of that. And the Christian nationalism narrative has helped me more than anything else. And so I would like us to ask, I think it's time for the church to seek Jesus. I think it's time for the church to understand the nature of the gospel, to understand the nature of the kingdom of God, And to be able to live in such a way where you are more than free to vote in a particular way. But we have to be people who are willing to call a spade a spade. And at the end of Donald Trump's presidency, actually right before the events on January 6th happened, um, the New York Times reports there were several members with him and, and Mike Pence. And of course, Pence is, Mike Pence is responsible for confirming the vote, right? The, the, the electoral vote. And President Trump told him, you can either go down in history as a patriot or you can go down in history as a pussy. And now in the final days of President Trump's presidency, he has virtually turned on everyone. I'm not sure I could come up with a more loyal supporter of President Trump than Mike Pence. And yet here now, When things, again, have not gone his way, he's turning on everyone. I kind of look at this based on the words N.T. Wright says about what happens to the wicked city is what she has brought upon herself. In God's own work, he turns wickedness back on itself. And I don't know how else to look at the events that are happening here. The tremendous support that President Trump may get from people who are not Christians, that's fine. I don't understand that. I wouldn't claim to know that. But it is helpful for me to try to put a finger on where so much of the support comes from. To the end, to the conspiracy theories, to the all the all all the things involved that somehow the belief that this person – was going to is, is worth every marble we can put into that basket. I think we are watching that implosion happen and it's ugly. And right now, John is saying, come out of her, my people. Christians, it's time that you separate from these beliefs. It's time that you break off this fusion, that you break off this unholy marriage between the Christian faith and American civic life. If you break that off and you join true to me, you can honor America, you can love your nation, but you don't treat it as a sacrosanct, untouchable, God-blessed, God-ordained entity that you truly feel you need to defend at every turn when someone critiques it. That is dangerous. That is a dangerous place to be because you will in fact be seeking ungodly means and un-Jesus-like means to defend something in Jesus' name that isn't even connected to Jesus. And I think that's where thousands and thousands of Christians are. Again, I'm not here to convince you whether or not you're right or wrong. I think the four categories Of how a person responds to the statement, America is a Christian nation, rejectors, resistors, and accommodators, and ambassadors does a world of good to help us understand where various people fall in that line. And then that is able to help me understand why they have the positions that they do. And so I recommend you go out and buy this book, um, Taking America Back for God, Christian nationalism in the United States by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel L. Perry. It's outstanding. But I think Revelation is saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. You know, if plagues are the inevitable result of people making these kinds of choices, then the church is going to get caught up in those. We're not gonna, we don't want to take part in her sins. We don't want to take part in in being complicit in things that American civic life is now doing because we think that American civic life is in relationship with the Christian faith. Judgment is coming, John's telling us, and anyone caught in the clutches of fallen human empires will fall right along with them. And I think a fallen human empire was on full display a week ago when people believing themselves to be doing God's work by fighting for President's, President Trump's reelection, went and committed some atrocious crimes in the name of what? Jesus saves? Jesus is my savior? Trump is my president? I'm having a hard time understanding how and why those two statements would ever be put on the same sign in the first place. I think what's important to us is to recognize that anything that does not resemble Jesus Christ is not part of the kingdom of God. Anything contrary to the character of Jesus embodied is not part of the kingdom of God. As a community, the church is to be Jesus to the surrounding world. And what that means is that we are to care for those ostracized by society. We are to learn how to live in love with our neighbors. We are to learn how to love our enemies. And we are to stand opposed to systems of power and corruption that harm the weak and vulnerable. And I know that it's very easy to imagine that it's the the political left that is the right. Well, as President Trump wants to say, the, the radical left, right? We have witnessed and are witnessing the radical right. And it's just as ugly and fallen and broken as all the fear-mongering is out to, to get us to believe is true of the, of the, of the um, political left. But if the church stands opposed to systems of power and corruption that harm the weak and vulnerable, then the church, not being in bed with either political party, is able to critique Either political party, when it's, when it's relationship to power and corruption that harm real people, when that happens, we critique it. We speak truth to power. When those systems benefit weak and vulnerable people, we commend it. There are places where the conservative party defends the weak and vulnerable. We have the conversations about abortion. And I think for lots of people, they vote exclusively Republican for that one very issue. There are others who are very concerned on the political left with caring for the weak and the vulnerable. Those who are racial minorities and women and wanting protection for for people who are overlooked or who are undermined. The narrative of Christian nationalism oftentimes works against care for the weak and vulnerable because those who believe that America is a Christian nation believe that only those who are of the correct race and who believe in the right family structure and who have the right nationality and who um, have been born in the United States are those who really belong, need to be here and those who are coming in from other places are viewed as threats this book, again, was very illuminating in that it unpacks the way that different people, based on which group they're in, rejector resistor, accommodator, or ambassador, how they view immigrants and those who are unlike us. And the statistics are disturbing. I think the church needs to separate itself from political reality. It needs to separate itself, not that we're not involved in it, But that the narrative that America is a Christian nation and that no harm will come by by seamlessly blending or fusing American civic life with the Christian faith, that lie needs to be put to death. And the church, I believe, will be more effectively prepared to be the church, to be able to be um, a light to the nations when we separate ourselves um, from that myth, from that narrative, if you will. And so Revelation 18, I think, are timely words for us. They're words that encourage us to think about these things and to be challenged by what it might be calling us to do. And that may take a little bit of soul searching. That may take a little bit of going down through and saying, these are principles that I have to hold to, but that others are worth reinvestigating. And I would always encourage you, so take your cues, not from the cultural norms that are around you, but from what Jesus has come to do and what God is doing for the world through Jesus. We need him now more than ever. So I'm so thankful that you are tuning in. Got our very generous and kind rating and review this past week. Thank you so much um, for, for doing that. You know who you are and i um, not sure we've ever met and, and that's always fun as well so feel free to reach out to me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com if you have any comments, thoughts, questions, responses um, thank you so much for the handful of you that continue to support me financially um, for this podcast it's just such a such a gift and you are so um, just you have such a special place in my heart I'm thankful for that and if you would um, like to do that in any way I would love your, your support that way there should be a link at the bottom of the show notes in this episode or any of the episodes for you to support this podcast for ninety nine cents or four ninety nine or nine ninety nine a month or any other figure. I'm sure there's a way for you to identify um, just how much you'd like to support the podcast. But I'm so grateful for you. It allows me again to buy resources like the Take America Back for God book that I've been able to work through and then just to share these things with you. Thanks, thanks so much. Hope you have a great week. Talk to you next time.